Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 97th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends call me JAG. I'm the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like our animated videos and graphic novels. Today, we are joined by Professor Dorian Abbott. Before I even get into introducing our guest, I wanna remind those of you who are watching us on Zoom, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, or YouTube, you can use the comment section to type in your questions. We will get to as many as we can. So Professor Abbott is a geophysicist teaching at the University of Chicago, I believe since 2011. And while his work is widely recognized within academic geophysics, you might not have heard of him had he not been invited to give a prestigious lecture at MIT, an invitation which a group of angry graduate students and faculty pressured the administration to rescind. Today, we're here to discuss with Professor Abbott some of the events leading up to that controversy, what it signifies about the state of academic freedom and tolerance on campus, and why academic admissions and hiring programs should treat people as individuals and not as members of a group. Professor Abbott, welcome again. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So uh, before jumping into your most recent experience with cancel culture, our, our viewers would love to learn a little bit about you. Um, you're, you study planets that are very, very far away uh, with an ultimate interest in, among other things, extraterrestrial life. Um, what led you to your particular discipline? Well, so my PhD is in applied mathematics, and I like problems where there's a computational component and some analytical sort of like equations component. And I like problems where we care about a factor of 10, like an order of magnitude. So you know things so little that you care if you can just get it within a factor of 10. And these exoplanets, extrasolar planets, sort of uh, are consistent with that because they've just been discovered over the past 25 years. And the smaller ones are just being discovered now. And so we know very little about their climate and what they would be like. And so there's lots of fun problems to work on. So it was math. It wasn't uh, Star Trek or no, science just, fiction? No, it's just a good problem. And actually, uh, I've shifted a little. I'm focusing a little less on that, at least in my own research, mostly because it's starting to be a little more saturated, like hmm. sort of low-hanging fruit have been grabbed. And so I'm, I'm working on some more planetary dynamic stuff. And I've actually been looking at some flu modeling, which I find fun. Fascinating. Well, uh, would love to, to, to get into that because uh, there's obviously been a lot of controversies about some of the modeling that uh, was used early on to, to justify um, these lockdowns, which don't seem to have had much of an effect and um, have had so many dis disastrous consequences. Uh, we were chatting a little bit. Um, Ukraine is on everybody's mind. Um, we have a new animated video, My Name is Ukraine, which is probably gonna be posted tomorrow. Um, she has family in Ukraine. Um, how are they doing? How, and also 
kind of going back to uh, to connecting with what you went through, how did her experience growing up under communism shape her perspective uh, that she brought to supporting you with the pressures you faced because of your views? Yes, yeah, so my wife is Ukrainian. She's from Zakarpatia or Transcarpathia Oblast, which is in the far Southwest. And I get, this is true of all regions in Eastern Europe, but they were part of all sorts of different places over and over again. So it started the 20th century in the Austro-Hungarian empire. And then after World War I, it was kind of traded around between Romania and Czechoslovakia and Hungary. And then it was part of Hungary during World War II and it was conquered during World War II by the Soviet Union and added on to uh, Ukraine. But ethnically, most of the people there are Ukrainian, although there are also Hungarian and Romanian people uh, in her region. But it's the far Southwest and it's the only region that hasn't been bombed so far. So her family's safe. You know, they're not super happy about everything that's going on. There's a lot of refugees there. So I think two thirds of the refugees are internal and mm -hmm. a lot have come to Zakarpatia because it's the safest region so far. So there's a lot of refugees and people are trying to help them. Uh, her brother has joined the militia, which is called the Territorial Defense Forces, but he, he doesn't have any military training. So most of what they have him doing is picking up food for refugees and bringing it to them, stuff like that. Very heartbreaking. Um... And I know well, your other question, you had a second part of the question. So uh, my wife was born in 1989, so she didn't really experience. Yeah, right on the uh, But her mother did. And actually just, you know, there's hundreds of stories that you could tell, just the suffering that people went through for generations. Uh, but I'll just tell one. When I first met my wife, she showed me a picture of her mother and her mother's a school teacher. And it was teacher's day and there were uh, her mother and two other teachers holding flowers the children had brought them and they were scowling at the camera and i said why aren't they smiling and my wife looked at me like i was crazy and she said no one who lived through socialism smiles wow but it was like like you didn't know that <laughs> which i later found out was a little bit of an exaggeration her, her mother does smile but in public like at at the school or something there's no smiling. And mm -hmm. it has an effect, you know, 30 years later, it reverberates on the people who, who had to go through that. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, scarcity of food, uh, <laughs> as, as we'll, we'll be getting into, of course, with the uh, Holodomor, and um, scarcity of, of laughter, scarcity of, of smiles. Uh, but I, it probably you know, gave her quite a perspective on, um, conformity and uh, just requiring everybody to toe the same line when you um, you stumbled across it. So uh, you, you're at the University of Chicago. You did your undergrad at Harvard? Right, and PhD. Okay, uh, probably a little later than I was there. Uh, what led you to the University of Chicago? I believe you've narrowed your choices to MIT and the University of Chicago. Given your yeah. recent experience, you're probably pretty relieved you chose the latter. So was it hindsight yeah. or, or you know, foresight or something else? Well, okay, so I came for a postdoc at the University of Chicago in 2009. And then for, for faculty position, I was deciding between MIT and UChicago. 
And it was sort of a lot, I, I was thinking about it for a long time. And then I went on a hike, a week long hike. And uh, then I was in the, I was back in the lecture hall at the university and I was alone sitting in the lecture hall and a beautiful woman who was about 50, an older woman, you know, I was in my late twenties, came in and sat next to me and I felt very comfortable with her. And I said, what should I do? And she said, don't go to MIT. And then, then I woke up and I was <laughs> on the hike, at, you know, and it was the morning, but then I knew what to do. So that's how I decided. Well, I'm glad you got my message because I came into your dream. Um, <laughs> time you. traveled and, uh, <laughs> and thanks for the lovely compliment. Um, so getting into to, to what happened, uh, you said that it was about five years ago, like in 2017, yeah. you started to notice some changes in your department um, that made you uncomfortable and that those uh, accelerated in, into 2020, um, which precipitated you wanting to share a different perspective with your colleagues. So what happened? Yeah, I mean, I guess I originally noticed some the sort of like first little sniffs of this stuff, at least that I noticed, a lot of these ideas have been kicking around for a long time. They're just in a new form. But I started to notice it when I was an undergrad and you know, I'm sitting at the, hanging out with my physics friends, talking about physics at the cafeteria table. And then there'd be like, you know, people, or like I had a girlfriend who was sort of gender studies kind of stuff, but she would say some of their stuff and it was like sort of a funny joke. Uh, but then it sort of like, it came out of its, it, it was contained and, but it, it broke cocoon. free. Yeah. It broke free and started infecting everything else. And I, so I hadn't really thought about that. St- I mean, I, it, most of this stuff is so, it's so easy to dismiss that you don't spend a lot of time thinking about how to oppose it because it's just obviously crazy. Uh, but it started to show up in my life slowly uh, it, and part of that I mean a lot of this was is sort of like the the safe spaces and trigger warnings and uh, I guess you call it microaggressions like being really really careful about your language and delicate about everything you say so when I came to you Chicago that was like, it was the opposite of that you know and that's you, you could go to the lunchroom and talk about whatever you wanted you know you I remember having conversations about, you know, like explorers who had to resort to cannibalism and all sorts of things. And, you know, it, was, it wasn't a big deal. And the, but then it sort of started to change around 2015 to 2017. And my initial response was to sort of withdraw, you know, just uh, I don't want to get in trouble. So I'm just going to eat my lunch in my office and, you know, not go to the Department of Eds, that kind of thing. But then everything went really cuckoo in 2020. And so it was sort of like, it was like we were spending all of our time talking about somebody's conception of social justice rather than just doing our science. And, you know, like they wanted to make in our journal club, a list of sort of rules of engagement that was mostly about using all the right social justice language and blah, 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 blah. And then we had to spend all of our time reading articles about social justice stuff and then invite speakers based on their, you know, type of who person they were. And so then there's this journalist, Barry Weiss. Have you heard about her? Of course, yeah. And so 
that summer she resigned from New York Times and she had this letter saying why she did it. And I read that and I sent it to the department chair and all the former chairs. And I said, you know, we've got the same problem in our department. Uh, everyone's afraid to speak their mind. You know, what can we do about it? And they all said, oh, you're a tenured professor. Say whatever you want. You, you know, you won't have any trouble. <laughs> You'll be fine. Just anything you want to say, go ahead and say it. So I said, oh, okay. And then that fall, I just had a number of experiences where I felt that we were discriminating against people in certain, you know, hiring decisions and things like that. Or I was involved in case in situations where I felt that there was discrimination happening. And then Can you give some examples. Yeah, like you or know, particular groups of people, or yeah, like people saying, "Oh, I don't, I don't want any Chinese grad students because uh, the." They don't speak the language well enough or something like that or mm -hmm. you, you know you can't trust their gre scores now of course we've thrown out our gre <laughs> because we've gotten so uh sjw but that sort of thing or uh we need more diversity not more of that kind of person mm -hmm. those types of comments in hiring decisions uh i mean you know the most egregious one was i was on a faculty hiring committee and uh, we got informal word from the dean that was passed to us through the department chair and the chair of the committee that we couldn't hire an Asian or white man. So we could do a search with all the non-discrimination language, but then they weren't going to consider a case if it was an Asian or a white man. And so, you know, I, 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 now I would have pushed back a little bit, but at the time I was just like, what? We're just, we're just going to do it that way now. You know, I just didn't know what the rules were. And mm -hmm. so anyway, so that, that sort of thing started to bother me. And then there was an internal seminar that was uh, promoting uh, Ibram Kendi's work and the, you know, anti-racism concept. And if you're not, if you're not anti-racist, you're racist, then, you know, it's necessary to put discrimination into the system and any, any, any disparity of outcome is uh, evidence that there was discrimination and it's necessary to put discrimination in to fix that, that kind of stuff. And so I asked to give a response in this internal department seminar series and I was refused. So I posted on YouTube and for me, this is in the fall of 2020. So like I, I had used at the time, I didn't know anything about social media and how this stuff works. I mean, I've learned now, but I, I put on YouTube thinking like, Oh, this is a good way. I've got these files. I recorded these talks. That's a good way I can share stuff with other people. And uh, it turned out that people went on Twitter and they said, oh, how bad, bad this guy is. And then it just started this huge thing. So, wow. So uh, uh, that must have been, you must have been completely blindsided. Uh, do, you, do you remember what was going through your head at the time or how your well, wife the first reacted? thing I thought was that it's pretty funny and ironic because like one of the main points was people are having trouble speaking openly in our department and I spoke in our department that they pretty much proved my point right away mm -hmm. uh, that's true but yeah I was at first I was nervous because it's just a weird experience like I don't care too much if people call me a dumb dumb or, or say I'm a bad guy or whatever. It just, it doesn't really matter to me. 
but it is a weird experience when all of a sudden, like all these people, you know, are writing on Twitter about how awful you are. And it's sort of like, you know, me, like we've known each other for five years, you know, I'm not an awful person. So that was kind of odd. And then of course, I didn't know if I was going to get fired. And so that was, Mm -hmm. my wife is a very strong person. And I told her like, well, so for, you know, I said, I might get fired. This is crazy. And she said, I I know what it's like to be hungry and not have enough to eat. I know what it's like to be cold and not have enough warm clothes. And I know I don't have to worry about that here. So, you know, whatever happens, I'll, uh, I'll be with you. And so that, that kind of strength and support makes a huge difference. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, so, you know, this is happening. You're at the University of Chicago. For, for those who don't know, uh, University of Chicago has in some ways historically been kind of a beacon of free speech. Um, it has a, a statement, a policy. Uh, how initially when I'm assuming people on Twitter are calling for you to be fired and uh, what, what kind of demands came, came back and what was the response from, from your university? Well, okay, so the demands, you can go read the letter, it's out there, but they made a letter with like 13 points of demands. This, this, this has become part of the tactic. So this is how it works. You, you whip up a Twitter storm and then you uh, make, present a bunch of demands to the relevant official. And then you threaten basically that you're going to cause a huge scene if your demands aren't met. Uh, it's generally an empty threat, although sometimes it does end up in some sort of a scene, like people blowing air horns and yelling and stuff like that. But the demands in my case were things like it, it. So by the time it got to the letter of denunciation, me losing my job was not one of the demands. That was something that was mentioned on Twitter, but it wasn't one of the official demands. And the official demands were basically like, I, like restrict my ability to have a research group. Uh, restrict my make, uh, take away my right to teach undergrad classes. Uh, generally, you know, various types of shaming. I was supposed to go to a uh, what they call transformative justice seminar or something like that, where I would education camp. Yeah, kind of like uh, you know where I would be go in front of everyone and apologize for my misdeeds. And then the one that I thought was, so a lot of the the target of this was not necessarily me. It was everyone else trying to make Mm. sure that they didn't disagree. And so one other thing it said was uh, basically interrogate all the faculty, figure out which ones held views similar to mine, and then force them all to go to (laughs) re-education. So this is one of the demands. And it's funny that this is made in a straight face. So the university, in terms of the top administration, the president of the university at the time was Bob Zimmer who is now the chancellor. And he's been one of the main advocates in higher education for free expression. And when this stuff came across his desk, he just issued a statement that didn't mention me by name, but said, our faculty are free to express themselves however they want on any of our policies, because I was criticizing some of what's called diversity, equity, and inclusion, which does occur at the university, and they won't be punished for that. And that just ended the whole thing. Now, that's a lesson because it was so easy for the president to stop this stuff. I mean, it, it's trivial. Like basically these, all these presidents, if they just said no we're not, you know, to the children, the whole thing would end. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing was the lower level 
administrators were not so uh, behaved so clean, cleanly. Yeah, and so there was a lot of sort of wishy-washy both sidedism. Like, well, you know, he has the right to say this stuff, but it's hurting the culture of the department and all this stuff. And it's like, no, the the culture of an academic department is inquiry. And what hurts the culture is when people are trying to stop other people from saying what they think. And so I think they should have said that right from the beginning, like, look, guys, we're not, we're not uh, doing anything to Dorian and uh, get back to your, go back to your laboratory and stop this silliness. I mean, that, that should have been the response. And then there was even what the Department of Astrophysics, their head sent out this email that was like, I can't believe someone would think like this in 2020 and all this stuff. And it's sort of like, you know, like what, what's the, I mean, like basically he's just saying, I, I have absolutely no integrity and I'll just say whatever you want in order to, so that you don't come after me next. And so those guys, I was not super happy about. So a couple of things I'm taking away from, from your description of, of what happened. One is that it's uh, it's more than an irrational, spontaneous combustion event. Um, that you know there may be that element of it, but that these things are then there's a list. It's already prepared. There's a yeah, template. Yeah, yeah. There's no um, question about that. Yeah, yeah, and 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 they use it. That's something I I noticed as as well. Um, and uh, I wrote about one of the uh, race hoaxes on campus. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they found th these horrible, uh, you know, things written on uh, somebody's locker and stick notes on their bag. Uh, the next day, there's the collective, they have their demands, they're, yeah. you know, kind of, you've seen them before, we need more funding for this department and that department. Yeah. Uh, of course, in that case, as in so many, as you know, one of our previous guests, Wilfred Riley, has pointed out, um, it, it turns out not to be uh, the case. Um, but but the other thing that, um, and I I wonder how that made you feel, and and because it must be a bit complicated, is that you're looking at people and their responses, which are attacks on you are not necessarily motivated by genuine ideological zeal, but in part by uh, just cravenness and, and wanting to try to avoid getting the next, you know, lash coming yeah. down on them. Well, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's funny because, well, I'll, let me just tell you something like there was this, this letter of denunciation that was signed by a bunch of people. And I intentionally didn't look at who signed it because I didn't want to, uh, you know, I know I have to work with these people in the future. Mm -hmm. And also I don't know who, who did it because they were pressured into, who did it because, you know, they're an SJW. I didn't know who, who's who. And so, I don't know, but yeah, the, the situation is it's a hard thing. And especially with the students, like a grad student, they can be put under tremendous pressure. I mean, you saw this Yale uh, law student who mm -hmm. had the, the diversity uh, apparatchik, apparatchik or whatever, you know, the apparatchik <laughs> uh, call this guy into their office and they say like, 
you know, we're going to, we're going to end your career. You know, we're going to, all the law firms will hear about this unless you apologize and all this stuff. You know about this story? No, I hadn't heard about I it. Look at that one. That was a few months ago. It was basically, it was a uh, Native American student who was a member of this, uh, the Federalist Society, which tends to be more conservative. Mm-hmm. And he advertised a party, which was called Trap House Party. Apparently, a trap house is some sort of a slang. I can't explain it to you because I don't know the urban lingo, but people got mad at him and they said it was somehow discriminatory and bad or blah, blah, blah. But the the key point is that the diversity officers uh, wanted him to issue this apology. And that's always part of it. They want you to apologize for something that you didn't do wrong. Uh, And then... And they were saying like, we'll destroy your career. So the students are under a lot of pressure is all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I feel more negative about department chair level people who didn't have their job and say like, look guys, get back in the laboratory. We're not, we're, you know, we're not punishing a professor for stating his opinions on something. And that, that's important to note is that this isn't a case where I went out and said something inflammatory. Like it, it was very basic stuff with, with evidence and arguments and things. I was just saying, look, this is my moral and philosophical perspective and I'm not okay with how we've been doing things. And I think people need to be able to express their opinions openly, which doesn't seem to be the case right now. So we're gonna to get to some of the questions that are coming in, but um, just to, to, to get all the facts out and the, the narrative of what had happened, uh, you, when did you get invited to speak at MIT and how did that? Yeah, so the, the MIT unfold? thing. So there's like a part of being a scientist is going around and giving seminars at other universities and talking about your work, but this was a different thing. This was a special honor called the the Carlson Lecture, and uh, this thing was supposed to be like a big event, and they choose, you know people in the field, I would have been the youngest person to do this. It was like a big deal to get this. And so they wanted me to come talk about something about climate. And so I was gonna tell about the, uh, these planets orbiting different stars and how you can study their atmospheres and see which ones might potentially have life or which ones you should look at to search mm-hmm. for life. Okay, so that, that was the context. This all happened before I got in trouble for the first time, before I became a thought criminal. So I was just a regular old guy and nobody knew who I was and uh, nobody was angry at me. And then this stuff started happening in the fall of 2020. Okay. And my lecture got canceled in the fall of 2020 because of COVID. So then they reinvited me in the summer of 2021. Okay. So I'm like, okay, whatever. But then that summer, I also wrote an article with a friend at Stanford, Ivan Marinovich called uh, about why we don't like diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we have this other thing called merit, fairness, and equality that we think is better. We'll put that, that link was, in the- uh, That was a news week. And so like a lot of people saw it. And so then on Twitter, it's funny because these ideas start on Twitter and you can watch how they develop. A bunch of people, you know, including a professor at University of Austin were like, we shouldn't invite this guy to give seminars anymore. And so like it kind of got into people's heads, like, oh, one way to sort of 
apply more pressure. Well, we couldn't get him fired. We couldn't restrict his job, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe we can apply more pressure by making it so he can't go around and give talks. And so then when it was announced that I was supposed to give this talk at MIT, the activists put this strategy into action that has sort of been developed over the summer. And so it was a, a relatively small number, maybe a dozen of activists who mm -hmm. tried to do this, but they, they sort of, they, they have a, they act, it acts, Twitter acts like a force multiplier. So, you know, a dozen of them can make a bunch of nasty comments and then it sort of, it looks like there's more people and then other people like it, but even the likes it's, you know, it's like hundred or 200 or so. There's not that many people. And then that's sort of what caused this thing to get canceled. Hmm. Um, and what was the response after that? From whom? Well, I, you know, I, I understand that you got some other forums that, uh, oh, yeah. that wanted you to speak and... Um... Yeah, so Robert George at Princeton, who's a really great uh, professor, he has a, uh, I'm blanking on the name, but the, he has a special fiefdom at Princeton mm -hmm. and they invited me to come give the lecture in, in his fiefdom. Uh, do you think do you think MIT will ever kind of come to its well, so after or? this whole thing they invited me to come give a department seminar uh -huh. so not the big Carlson lecture uh, but a department seminar and in theory I'm going this spring and you know I'm happy to go and talk to people and there's a lot of great scientists there that I'd like to interact with and basically they weren't I mean like I said it's like a dozen activists who are responsible for the bad behavior. And mm -hmm. so it's not like everybody there is, should be blamed for this. And of course, some of the leadership there who caved in, uh, that was not good behavior. But anyways, yeah, I'm happy to go back and give a talk. And if they invite me to give the Carlson lecture again, I'll go give it, so. We shall see. All right, let's get to some of these questions. Uh, we have a question from Instagram, Manny. Teravina asks, do you think there is more pushback against DEI on campuses in 2022, or is your opinion still the, the minority opinion? I mean, are you seeing the pendulum swing in any way? Yeah. Well, okay, I have a lot of comments on that. So the first comment is, I don't think my opinion was ever the minority opinion. I think it was the majority opinion and is currently the majority opinion, or at least some variant of my opinion. Uh, at least my opinion that people should be able to express themselves freely and that there shouldn't be overt discrimination. I think that's the majority opinion in the sciences, uh, but whether there's pushback. So traditionally there was not pushback until you know a few people started speaking out. And there's definitely more people who are willing to speak out now than in 2020. And part of it is getting blindsided. like this stuff just all of a sudden exploded. Uh, and part of it is just people looking around and saying like, okay, if you're a tenured professor, you at least have a chance of surviving this stuff. You know, like I, I basically have survived two cancellation campaigns and mm -hmm. I'm doing fine. You know, I still do my research. There's some people who don't want to work with me and that's fine. They don't have to, but I'm, I'm doing okay. And so people see that and maybe they start to push back a little. Then the only other thing I would say about your addition to that comment, I don't like the term pendulum, you mm -hmm. know, because it's too passive. So it's like, oh, the pendulum will just swing back. But I think we, you know, when we're searching for a metaphor, it should be something that involves us 
having to actually right. get off our butts and do something. Mm-hmm. And so, and so that's what's really required here is that if you are not happy with this stuff, you got to do something. It could be a small thing. You could just say that at a faculty meeting or say your opinion out loud without looking over your shoulder at lunchtime. And it could be bigger. You could write articles and, uh, you know, I got elected to the university Senate uh, and I've been trying to advocate for this stuff. It's not working very well because most of the people on the university Senate are kind of from the gender studies, uh, you know, category. But, you know, well, you can push back in a variety of ways. You can you could bring um, uh, some of our faculty, Professor Stephen Hicks or Professor Jason yeah, yeah, Hill. Yeah. They're both yeah. uh, senior scholars at the Atlas Society and philosophy pr- professors. In oh, the really? Area. Yeah. I've read yeah. Hicks' book on... Uh, Postmodernism. Postmodernism, and I enjoyed that very much. Well, if there's ever an opportunity where we can um, to get them to to your school, um, uh, they could talk. We about have an that. idea. So Harold Uleg and I, who's a econ professor, we have an idea that we call the Chicago Center for a Free Society, and a big portion of that would be hosting controversial speakers. You know, just people who are willing to say their mind, but who are serious academics, not sort of. Uh, you know, just people who want to get a rise out of, out of other people right. and hosting them at the campus and having YouTube, having a broadcasted on YouTube and having a podcast uh, to kind of try to desensitize people to other points of view, because part of what's going on now is it's so segregated on the university politically uh, that students just aren't used to hearing a center left viewpoint that that is something that gets attacked now. And so just to sort of push introduce other ideas so that uh, people have a sort of a broader uh, basis for their intellectual evaluations of ideas. Right, and so they're not so, so fragile. Well, um, I, I think uh, Professor Hill is also an interesting uh, case. In addition to being an objectivist, he's also black and gay. So, uh, you know, a little harder to, to cancel, although, um, Believe me, they, they have tried at his university. Well, they have this thing called, uh, they have this silly thing that's like uh, oppression points. And I think they call it, I can't remember the silly word they use, but it's something like uh, intersectionality. Yeah, the intersection right. of oppression points. So he's got a couple, but he's still like a member of the patriarchy. And he's probably got some, he's got some uh, power points in addition to his, uh, Maybe. I mean, he's an immigrant, first generation immigrant. (laughs) All right. Let's see what else we have here. Um, Is Tina Malkowitz on Facebook asks, do you see other professors sympathetic to your views, but too scared of being fired or targeted to speak out? So did did some of them come to you and say? Uh, Hundreds. Wow. So for everyone that you hear about who speaks out on this stuff, there's hundreds of people who are scared to speak out, at least. Uh, so yes, an emphatic yes to that question. I um, had uh, another guest on this show uh, who uh, Bill Whittle said, if you can't spread the courage, at least don't spread the fear. How, how do we encourage people to spread the courage? Yeah, I mean, you have to do some evaluation of your career state. I mean, unfortunately, and- mm-hmm. They're gonna just, uh, they're gonna just bulldoze a grad student 
who tries to raise any of these points. And so I probably would not recommend a grad student try to speak up about this, but right. I mean, if you're a tenured professor, I mean, th this is part of the problem. Like what, what qualities get someone to be a tenured professor? You gotta be really good at your field, but you also have to like not piss everyone else off so that they'll vote for you to get tenure and stuff. And it, it's not really the entrepreneurial spirit that tends to produce tenured professors. So I think a lot of times you end up with people where, first of all, they're so obsessed with their thing that they don't want to do anything to mess that up. And then the other thing is it leads to kind of timid people. But I think it really is the responsibility of tenured, the tenured faculty to say, no, we're not going to do this. You know, we're, everyone is welcome to share their opinion. And we actually are doing something important here. The science we're doing is important. It's so important that we don't want to sacrifice it uh, in the name of some engineered uh, social goal. All right. Um, Alan Turning on Instagram asks, has more woke ideas infiltrated how people are supposed to teach their classes such as in the hard sciences? Yeah, so just to give you a silly example, but a pretty telling one, I had a, a university administrator who uh, is kind of supposed to help us develop teaching stuff. And I was working on a new lab for my course, uh, like a physical lab, and it was about black body radiation. And he said, oh, you know, you shouldn't use that word black body radiation because it's like black bodies are blah, blah, and blah, blah, blah. And you can use some other term. I was like, no, <laughs> that's the physics term. And we're using it in physics. I don't care if the X studies department has adopted the physics term and is trying to use it for something else. So that sort of thing is coming up a lot. Uh, and then there was actually recently, I pulled this up because I thought it might come up. Uh, where is that stupid thing? So yes, there was a paper that was published in Physical Review Physics Education Research. So Physical Review is like where physicists publish stuff. And this is the education research called uh, that came out March 11th. Observing Whiteness in Introductory Physics, a case study. And you can look it up, but it's as bad as you can imagine and worse. And so, yes, it's, it's totally infiltrating. It's coming in through people trained in education schools, which, which have been captured ideologically. And it's coming in through the administrative structure, which is mostly staffed by people from education schools, which have been captured ideologically. Yes, we, we recently uh, published um, philosophies of education and uh, it was by Professor Stephen Hicks and um, just talking about the progression and, and the history of how, how this came in. It's, um, it's been almost like clockwork, you know, from, from the framework that, uh, that Tate and, and Greg Lukianoff set up in terms of the changes that were happening and when they started yeah kind of hitting the universities and then when they started hitting the, the graduate schools. So. Um, yes, yes, yes. That's interesting that you mentioned that because I read their book and it did, it was people of, I forget what they call it, but the, there's a particular generation as they went through every level, that's when it got bad. And that is when it got worse uh, with our grad graduate students. Uh, okay, Jeremy. IGen, IGen is the name. IGen, that's, yeah. you're right. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy Ryder on Instagram is asking, is your day-to-day -day teaching more normal now 
or do you have to deal with a lot of faculty or students who are hostile or harassing you? I don't feel like anyone's harassing me, but uh, there are certainly some people who are hostile to me. Uh, they have these big five traits. Have you ever heard of these? The psychologists have. Mm -hmm. One of them is called agreeableness. And I'm in like the fifth percentile of agreeableness. So I probably wouldn't really notice or care if someone was being hostile to me uh, anyways. So, you know, I'm able to get my stuff done. So mm -hmm. I'm not worried about that. On a, on a personal level, I know you and I uh, talked a bit before and you said you're not much of a fiction guy. But yeah. if you imagine a novel or a story that was told about your experience and you know, part of what's happening is changes that are happening to the hero, the character, in this case, yeah. you, how would you say you've changed through, throughout the, from the Dorian Abbott of yeah. 2017 to Dorian Abbott of 2022? Well, the biggest thing is, uh, this kind of fell on me, like, you know, I just want to be doing my weird physics stuff and playing with equations. I don't want to be deal. I don't want to be on your podcast. No offense. Uh, but I know, I know you consider it a duty. <laughs> yeah. And so that's probably the biggest change is that I, I feel that this is an important issue that's really causing major problems in our universities and in our society. And some people need to start speaking up about it. And so I'm willing to be one of those persons. So that's probably the biggest change over the last five years. All right. Um, Free the Sheeple on Instagram asks, do you think that the viability or prestige of going to college is getting tarnished by funny degrees being put on the same level as a degree in science and mathematics? That's a big question. I mean, are <laughs> they put on the same level? I mean, if you're applying for a job, like a serious job, and you have a degree in X studies, are you going to be looked at the same as if you have a degree in physics? I certainly hope not, but <laughs> those X studies people, they're going into like the HR departments and uh, the administrators at universities and stuff. They're not going into the job where people actually have to do something or else the company loses money. Uh, so, but yeah, but, is, but the, the bigger question there is, the is all of this yeah the value of the college degree being diminished i mean yeah it has to be right like people employers if employers know that a certain fraction of the people that come from a particular college are not going to be as competent as they could be they're going to value it less and maybe that sort of market pressure will eventually solve some of these problems i don't know i mean you'd think so i mean just to give you a story like you chicago was famous at a time when other schools were discriminating against Jews, UChicago didn't discriminate against Jews. And so they snapped up all of, all of these brilliant Jews who were getting discriminated against and, uh, and outperformed the, you know, the money that they were spending basically. And so you'd mm -hmm. think that universities would start, you know, there'd be some universities that would try to adopt strategies that would get around this stuff in order to uh, you know, produce better right. research or better uh, students. And, you know, there's the University of Austin where they're trying to start doing this, but there could be some inefficiencies in the market, right? There could be some arbitrage opportunities here. 
And maybe there's some, someone has to get that started. And right now you have an inefficient market that's possible. I don't really know. So uh, you talked about these historical instances of discrimination against Jews, I, th I think which, you know, in, in some of the Ivy Leagues is probably still going on. They're not counted as Jews, they're just counted as white. Um, it seems to me that it's the Asian Americans that are really um, getting the, the brunt of this kind of reverse discrimination. We had on the show um, recently the author of An Inconvenient Minority, uh, Kenny Zhu, who makes the case that Asian Americans are facing some of the worst reverse discrimination um, because of the spread of diversity, inclusion and equity and critical race theory. Um, have you seen that? Do you feel like you, yeah, you guys have, have lost out on- I mean, That was part of what initially motivated me to speak out on this, that I was seeing particularly young Asian men getting discriminated against, and that was you know, not okay with me. But a couple of th other things I wanna say, first about the terminology, I, I wouldn't use the term reverse discrimination. So to me, mm -hmm. discrimination is discrimination. It doesn't have a directionality. Uh, they were just discriminated against as mm -hmm. a general thing. But then the other thing is, it's particularly inappropriate with Asians because at least in this country, they weren't doing the discriminating at any point, right? So what does it mean, reverse discrimination? They were discriminated against hundred years ago for one reason, now they're being discriminated against now for, for another reason. So uh, there's that. And then the other thing I wanted, did you ever read the book Moneyball? No. Okay, so it's about how the Oakland A's around 20 years ago were able to perform much better than they should have for the amount of money they spent uh, based on analyzing who has the talent to win games rather than who looks good. And so it turned out that, uh, that fat guys, ugly fat guys who are bad at defense and who don't get very many hits, but who walk a lot are really good at producing runs in baseball and they're undervalued. And so I think you could say that Asian men are the equivalent in academics right now, that they're, they are being undervalued. And so there's an opportunity out there for someone. Right. I wouldn't recommend hiring based on those characteristics, but there, there are undervalued assets floating around. Uh, so, you know, you, you've written about um, the importance of treating people as uh, individuals. Um, you, I think, wrote in that article that treating, quote, people as members of a group rather than as individuals uh, were repeating the same mistake that made possible the atrocities of the 20th century. So that really resonated with me because at the Atlas Society, um, the philosophy of objectivism is um, very much focused on the issue of individualism versus collectivism. So for many of the people that are listening and watching, it was Ayn Rand who uh, helped to cement that concept for them. Um, I'm wondering, like, uh, were there um, influences, books you may have read? You, you mentioned you, you read uh, um, The Coddling of uh, the American uh, Mind. Uh, were, there, were there other um, teachers or was it just the way you were raised and also okay, sense? So in terms of consistency between my take and the uh, objectivist perspective I would say Hayek is has been influential on me so 
it's shocking to me how underread and underappreciated Hayek is. And he really lays all this stuff out in the uh, road to serfdom. Road to serfdom, yeah. yeah. Hannah Arendt, I've also enjoyed her work. And uh, both of them, by the way, had a U Chicago connection. They were faculty here for some time. That's uh, so those are good uh, thinkers that are rough contemporaries of Rand and uh, you know could sort of fit under this umbrella objectivist mm -hmm. term in some way. But then where I diverge, I would say from objectivism is I'm coming from a Christian uh, perspective, philosophical and theological. And in that perspective, it's the, uh, the fact that humans are made in the image of God. It gives every person inherent dignity and it's, it's, it's therefore immoral and, and going against God to discriminate against people. Uh, and to treat them without dignity. And so to me, that's, that's an important point. And a thinker that I like who is good at explaining that at sort of a high philosophical level is Bishop Barron. And he has, he has a number of really good books and podcasts that you could check out. If All right, we, we definitely will. Um, so, you know, you've mentioned your, your parents and uh, your mother is a social worker. My mother is a social worker. My dad's an academic. Your father's a teacher and a carpenter. Um, and that they rose you with a sense of self-esteem and um, courage to have, you know, unpopular opinions to think for yourself. But that has now in your maturity led you to sometimes disagree. I mean, my, my parents yeah, and I definitely. are polar opposites, opposites politically. So I'm wondering if you have any tips on how you deal with it. We just don't talk about anything. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we're probably a little more in that category. I mean, but another thing is, it, it wasn't like we talked about politics every day when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. You know, it just wasn't that uh, popular Central. Dinner, a dinner table subject. Uh, but yeah, my parents are much more on the left wing, and I'm I'm actually pretty much in the center. Uh, in the last election, I used this. Uh, I used the. I like to use this. What do you call it? Who do I side with? Website where you answer a bunch of questions and it says your overlap. Mm -hmm. And then what I do is I have a Python algorithm, and I put in my overlap with each candidate, and then it uh, stochastically assigns my vote uh, with a weighting based on the overlap. Does that make sense? Yeah, I vote, I vote randomly based on the weighting. And the reason I do that is because it seems more fair. Like sometimes you're like, I'm 60% for this guy and 40% for that guy. And it feels wrong to give all of my, all of my vote to one guy. So mm -hmm. then I have a, a four in 10 chance of voting for the other guy. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyways, in the last election, I was 50.5% for Biden and 49.5% for Trump. So I'm pretty much right, right in the middle of the country which is yeah. funny because on, in the university context, people are like, you know, they think I'm like this wild right winger. <laughs> uh, but anyways, yeah. So when that comes up, I mean, my parents and I can engage in discussions about this stuff. They're very reasonable people, but we, it's just not the main subject we talk about. I have a, especially now because I have a young, a, a baby daughter. And so pretty much that's all they want. They don't even want to look at me. They want to, <laughs> yeah, they want to see her when we talk on the, uh, on the iPhone. That's, that's adorable. All right. Well, we're just got a few more minutes here. We've got a question about uh, your science and uh, talking about space. 
James Carmine on Facebook asks, are you bullish that we'll be colonizing Mars during our lifetimes uh, doing on the ground geological work? So I'm not an expert in that. Uh, so I, I can't give you a opinion that's much better than anybody else. All I would say, it, because that's really an engineering problem, essentially. And so, you know, it's just not something that I work on. It's also a sort of like economics and social problem. Like, I think it's totally possible we could do that, but are we going to in the next 30 or 40 years? I don't know. Uh, my understanding is that Elon Musk says he plans to die on Mars, not on impact. And, <laughs> you know, he, he's much better placed to evaluate that than I am. And he seems to think it's, it's doable and that it will be done. So I guess I would say I'm slightly more than 50% that that would happen in the next 30 or 40 years, but take it with a grain of salt because I'm not an expert. And you are also, uh, you do a lot of work on climate science, climate change. Yeah, I mean, mostly I teach that for the undergrads. Mm -hmm. So what I would say about that, I actually have an article called Conservation is Conservative. And I try to go through like all the arguments from a conservative perspective for why you should at least pay attention to climate change. And so the fundamental one, this is probably different. For, this is a much more conservative argument than an objectivist type of argument. But uh, it, Burke would say, you know, we don't want to change society drastically because society has come to a, a good equilibrium over thousands of years. And if you just start lopping off parts like you know better than everybody else, bad things are going to happen like the French Revolution. Okay, so you can apply that argument to climate change. And then, uh, but I go through a bunch of different types of arguments. The ones that might resonate most with your listeners are uh, for business conservatives. Uh, if you run a big corporation, uh, it turns out that if you do a cost benefit analysis and you take into account the fact that there could be, there's a low probability chance of, a, of ca more catastrophic stuff, it's a low probability, but it, if you take that into account, it can change your cost benefit analysis. And then for libertarians, the argument is uh, if you care about property, and this is something where the collective by emitting the, the CO2 could damage individuals' property. That's something that you should care about. But here's, oh, a link to the article. Yeah, it's called Conservation is Conservative. Uh, we'll we'll it, get it. We'll put it in there for you. Thinker, which is a great magazine you should all know about that our UChicago undergrads organize with the libertarian and conservative perspective. Of course, they're not very popular on campus, but uh, anyways, so... Here's what I would say about, here's my take on the climate change thing. Over the past 170 years, just from going around with thermometers and writing down the temperature, things that we can measure accurately, we know that the temperature, the global mean temperature has increased by a little under two degrees Fahrenheit. We also know just from measurements uh, from 1960 that the carbon dioxide level has increased by about 50% over that period. So we have good measurements from 1960 just in the air. And before that, we have little air bubbles trapped in ice. So that's how we know what the carbon dioxide was in the past. And we know from basic radiative physics, like the sort of stuff that's allowing us to communicate right now through our Wi-Fi or through cell phones and things like that, this is about the temperature change we would expect. So mm -hmm. everything's consistent with CO2 increases, causes the observed temperature increase, uh, and the CO2 increase is caused by humans burning fossil fuel. That stuff is all rock solid. 
The question is what's going to happen in the future. There's a huge amount of uncertainty about what's going to happen in the future from a scientific perspective, because it's difficult to forecast that, particularly because it depends on cloud behavior, which is small scale and difficult to model. And then there's a much bigger uncertainty about what the human impact would be and what, if anything, we should do about this problem. So the uncertainty about the future climate is something that's actively being worked on. I've done a little work on it. It's not my field of expertise. And then what we should do about it is, is not my field at all. That's just not my department. And so I don't like to speculate on things that I don't know anything about. And so that, that's, that's sort of where I sit on that. Well, uh, we've also had a couple of uh, recent guests on the show, Michael Schellenberger and uh, Steve Coonan. So we put those yeah. links in the thread. Yeah, Schellenberger is basically arguing that we should be doing more nuclear. Mm-hmm. And he's got his reasons. And Coonan, I think everything I just said, Coonan would agree with everything I just said. And then he would argue that there's this cloud uncertainty and there's reason to believe that the lower end of the climate sensitivity is more accurate. I, I, that's how, what I think Kunin would argue. Yeah, I, I think one of my biggest takeaways from um, his book, Unsettled, was that um, the, what's said in the reports, in, in the UN climate reports, what's then summarized um, in their summaries don't don't always match and um it's impossible to read the 500 you know page report uh but they're kind of summarized in a way to to be easily understood but also to be a a little bit um more newsworthy and we know that things that are newsworthy tend to be a little bit fright more frightening and then what gets then interpreted in terms of how it plays in the media. Um, yeah, that third thing is very important, how it ends up getting reported. But I, I think there's a danger with doing that as scientists. It's something that we should resist. There's a danger with thinking, uh, well, this is what I want the public to do. So I'm going to sort of tell the story that gets them to do that, whether or not it's the actual evidence. The biggest danger is people just stop taking you seriously. And you saw that with the COVID stuff, right? Absolutely. Uh, but the the other danger is if science becomes viewed as political rather than just a, you know, uh, unbiased statement of, of facts and conclusions, it's really bad for science long-term. Uh, and so I, I, I try to resist that, to resist doing that as much as possible. And I, I recommend that to other scientists. And the, the other well, thing, one more thing, people aren't dummies. So, inherent in that perspective is like, we, we, the elite, we've got it all figured out and you dummies have to like, you know, we can't trust you with the real information. And I much more prefer the perspective where you say like, this is what we figured out. You guys don't happen to be scientists, but we know you're smart people. And you know, you'll, we trust that you'll make it the best decision. That's my perspective. Yeah. If if we can't trust the people with freedom, then why should we trust the the experts and the leaders with power? So, Uh um, well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. I know uh, (laughs) this is not a labor of of love for you, but something that you feel strongly about. And I just commend the way that you're leading by example. And uh, I hope that you'll, um, others will be able to hear your story and say, you know, this is what happened to this guy. This is what they tried to do to him. He's still standing, and um, if anything, he's he's got a bigger platform, and he's he's more vocal and he's more passionate about it 
than even before. So uh, we really appreciate it. We appreciate you. Um, understand we can follow you on Twitter. Yep. And uh, Dorian Abbott, I think is my name, my Twitter handle. Great, we'll put that in the, uh, in the chat and uh, appreciate it and hope that we can do something together on campus with some of our faculty. Great, yeah, it was really fun chatting. Thank you. Thank you, appreciate it.